Welcome to the um, 824th regular meeting of the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago. I won't ask for the uh, saying of the Pledge of Allegiance here because it's a little, we don't have an American flag handy here. Or, uh, it's this short notice, so we're just going to go right into the meeting. Uh, first off, again, welcome to everybody. And um, yes, we've uh, been Due to inclement weather, as you know, we've had to make this a Zoom meeting. Uh, we did this a couple of times when we were in the throes of COVID a couple of years ago, but uh, this will probably be the only meeting this year where this is going to happen. Again, we usually have a simulcast, but this is going to be an exception because of the weather we're having tonight. A um, few announcements before we get before I introduce the speaker. First off, uh, something a little sad here. Um, Muriel Underwood. Uh, a lot of you, uh, a lot of the old timers know Muriel. She died uh, last month at the age of 100. Oh. Muriel was a, um, and has been a member of the round table for 50 some years, I would imagine. Uh, she used to be uh, Ralph Newman's secretary and put out these, the newsletter of the Chicago Civil War Roundtable. Uh, she was also a ex-Marine, I think Lieutenant Colonel, actually, in the Marine Corps. And her and Ed Burris, whenever Ed came to town, used to tell stories about the Marines to each other and everything. Uh, I have some fond memories of her. She was a grand lady, and uh, gosh, until I haven't seen her in a couple of years, but until Certainly through the age 90, she was as sharp as a tack and everything. And uh, I don't know, she's she's one of our links with the past and we will miss her. January in the Civil War. What happened in January in the Civil War? Well, January 1st, 1863. The Emancipation Proclamation took effect. It had been issued in the September before, but uh, it was made effective as of January 1st, 1863. And I guess that's a pretty important date in all of American history, let alone Civil War history. Uh, armies in the Civil War era usually did not fight much during the winter. And that's because, uh, not necessarily because of the weather we're having outside in Chicago right now. But the fact that uh, you'd have melting snow would turn the roads, which were dirt roads at the time, into mush, basically. And the armies couldn't move their supply wagons. So it was very difficult to transport anything uh, to get the armies to move forward. But there were some actions to, in January. January of 1865, for example, uh, the Union Army makes two attacks on Fort Fisher. The second one is successful, and Fort Fisher and then Wilmington, the last major seaport open to the Eastern Confederacy, is captured. And basically, Robert E. Lee's last surviving supply line to the outside world is severed. And that's one of the big reasons why Lee had to evacuate Richmond three months later. Let's see, January 1861. Sits part of the secession winter. Let's see, um, Georgia, Alabama, Florida, and Louisiana 
seceded from the Union that month. Uh, South Carolina done in December. Um, Texas, I think, did it in February. So a lot of important things happening in January of 1861. In January of 1861, um, there's the first attempt to supply Fort Sumter with provisions uh, using the merchant ship Star of the West. And Confederate batteries, one of them manned by uh, cadets from the Citadel Academy, fired cannon shots to scare the Star of the West off. And some people say that that's actually the first shots fired in the Civil War. See, January of 1862, the Battle of Mill Springs in Kentucky. Uh, George Thomas wins the first of many of his victories during the war, defeating and routing a Confederate army in eastern Kentucky. See, January 63, the Emancipation Proclamation. January 64, and just from memory, uh, Grant is appointed Commander-in-Chief of all the Union armies with the rank of Lieutenant General. And he comes to Washington to meet President Lincoln for the first time. Amazingly enough, President Lincoln appointed Grant as Commander-in-Chief and you know, Commander of all the armies, and he had never met the man before. But what he saw was enough. Um, he knew talent when he saw it, unlike perhaps the Sox, White Sox management. Uh, <laughs> that's another story, though. Uh, else there? Um, see, see, February, we're going to have um, oh, speakers. Yeah, let's, uh, talks this month. Uh, February, we're going to have Carolyn Ivanoff speaking to Chicago in the 17th Connecticut. She's uh, written a book on that subject. Uh, very good speaker. I happen to meet her at uh, an event in um, Gettysburg. Let's see, upcoming Civil War events. Much of already happened. January 14th of this Sunday, Northwest Indiana Civil War Roundtable uh, in Crown Point Library. Charlie Robesco is talking uh, the Last Man Standing, the 20th, Indiana. January 16th, next Tuesday, Lincoln Davis. Gene Saliger, many of you know, is going to be talking about Forest Raid and the Sultana. Gene has a new edition of his book on the Sultana, by the way. See, January 20th at the Salt Creek Civil War Roundtable, Steve Alban is going to be talking on the election of 1860, how Lincoln really got elected. Uh, interesting topic there, uh, interesting title for a topic, I should say. Um, just personally, tomorrow at 1030, I'm going to be, I am going to be speaking uh, to the Caledonian Retirement Center on Mary, Queen of Scots. I speak on Scottish history as well as a uh, bunch of other history, too. Um, for those of you who are here, do you, any of you have any uh, announcements you'd like to to uh, make or add at this point? If so, unmute your uh, microphone and say so, but otherwise keep your microphone muted. Bruce? Uh, yes. 
Mark Matranga. Mark Matranga. I, I think uh, in terms of January, wasn't January 1st, 1863, the second day of battle at Murfreesboro, Stones River? It was, certainly, yes. Yeah, I was just thinking of that. And also with regard to Muriel, you know, uh, Bob Stoller was always on my case because I was the last one to get on the bus because I was always trailing behind by 30 or 40 yards because, un unknown to him because he was a little tone deaf, I would never, ever oh. permit Muriel and Charlie Falkenberg, God bless him, to be the last ones on the bus. And after he reprimanded me numerous times, I finally told him, you know, you're an idiot, Bob. I hope he's listening. Uh, because I have too much respect for Muriel and Charlie. I can be 100 yards behind them and still beat them on the bus. You know, uh, I was younger then. Uh, so I always remember that with Muriel. I would never, ever let Muriel be the last person on the bus. She was a sweetheart. And uh, uh, I, I, I do... I do always, I do think about her. I thought about her a lot when I was the registrar and you and I did discuss uh, her uh, a couple years ago because uh, I was wondering if she was still alive. She was alive at that time. And uh, it is sad to see her gone. She was, uh, she was great. So that's all I have to say. Well, I can only echo what Mark just said. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, she's uh, one of our links with the past, certainly, and uh, a grand lady in her own right. Are there any other announcements? Okay, hearing none, well, uh, tonight we're going to have a great presentation by Pat Brennan, Colorizing Gettysburg. Uh, I guess it's appropriate that I introduce Pat because I've known Pat for was it 30 years at least yeah well I've, which probably says how old we are i don't know but uh uh but uh i've known pat for quite a while we shared not only interest in the uh, civil war but also in jazz music uh pat brennan is a longtime student of the civil war published author i have his book on the battle of uh, secessionville uh in south carolina and uh of course, we are probably going to be going back to do a Charleston tour, Charleston, South Carolina tour uh, <coughs> in 2026. So uh, your book is going to be prominent in uh, the historiography of it. Uh, <coughs> like I said, I've been uh, sort of under the weather here. Um, Pat has written more than 20 articles for a variety of Civil War magazines and journals. He's on the editorial advisory board of Civil War Monitor. He's um, also a broadcaster, musician, songwriter, uh, tech expert, obviously, and uh, many other things besides. A Renaissance man in the largest sense. Tonight he's going to be talking about his latest book, Gettysburg in color, and I'm not going to try and <laughs> describe the genesis of this book, or what got Pat into it, or what it's all about. I'll leave that to Pat. <laughs> so with no further ado, Pat, 
the, the forum is yours. Bruce, I, I have to say, you you have to start taking better care of yourself. <laughs> Listen to you cough like that. It's, it's hurting me. It's hurting my chest. Uh, I think we met when you were working for uh, Margie Parcells, was it? She was a state rep, and you were, uh, were you an aide to her? Or I, I don't remember what your official uh, title was. I had no official title, but I was helping out the Republican Party in, in the north suburbs at the time. So uh, I hung around a lot, and uh, you know, I'm probably not responsible for the Republican Party not in, not electing people in northern in the northern suburbs anymore. But uh, had a lot of fun doing it. That's that's the important thing. And uh, Margie's son was a drummer in the band that I was in, and we somehow met through that and stayed friends ever since. I think our mutual love of Stan Getz, the jazz saxophonist, is probably a good place where we started, and the Getz-Gilberto album, and uh, it went from there. Uh, I was a... Uh, member of the Chicago Civil War Roundtable until I started having kids. And then it, a lot of my time got taken up all of a sudden. And uh, and I did speak at the Chicago Roundtable in about 20 years ago on the Battle of Secession Bill. And I certainly uh, appreciate being asked to be here tonight uh, to speak again. I wish we would have been at the airport in the hotel because that's more fun, but Chicago weather tells us what to do, and we say yes. Um, back 10 years before I met Bruce, 1979, I had a really, really good year. I was on the East Coast of the United States in a car by myself, and I had absolutely nothing to do for two weeks. And I had three things that I decided that I was going to do. Number one, I was going to drive across New Jersey at night. Show of Bruce Springsteen's 1978 tour. That would be the Darkness on the Edge of Town tour. The second thing I was going to do was go to upstate New York and find Big Pink, which was the house that Bob Dylan and the band shared. Uh, when they hold up in that summer of 1967. And by running through the entire Appalachian songbook, uh, they ended up completely reorganizing and revolutionizing uh, rock music. And then the last thing I was going to do, the third thing I was going to do, was uh, I was going to go to Gettysburg. Now, at that time, I had two kind of competing lives going on. I was in, I was like Bruce said, I was a musician. I was a full-time musician uh, playing five nights a week all over the Midwest. And it was in a band that we wrote our own music. And it was kind of an Americana kind of thing, kind of a cross between rock and roll and folk and uh, country and all blues and that sort of thing. And we kind of amalgamated it all together and we, we were writing songs and i thought well driving across new jersey experiencing what bruce springsteen experienced would help me writing songs along those lines and of course 
going to upstate New York and experiencing the milieu of Bob Dylan and the band at that time would help me somehow become a better songwriter along those lines. And then I had the Civil War thing. Now, interestingly, the band I was in was called the Walter Williams Band. And for uh, those people here who appreciate uh, the the finest little parts of the Civil War, you may remember that supposedly the last living veteran of the Civil War was a Texan named Walter Williams. Now, I wasn't in the band when they named the band. And uh, when I was at Gettysburg in 1979, I saw a painting of Walter Williams in the old visitor center and discovered at that point that he had claimed to be the last living veteran of the Civil War. And I believe he decided he died December 15th, uh, 1959. Now, since then, we found out that he was telling stories and that he wasn't the last living veteran, even though 100,000 people showed up for his uh, funeral cortege through the streets of, I believe, Dallas, Texas. Well, be that as it may, I still believe that I had two computers heating interests in my life. One one was the Civil War, which I've been obsessed about since the since before the centennial, and my love and pursuit of music. So when I arrived in Gettysburg, I was pretty excited. It was a Monday, it was a little rainy. I was in June. So you would have thought it had been pretty warm, but it wasn't. It was kind of cool and dark and, like I said, a little rainy. And, of course, the first thing I saw as I came over uh, South Mountain, you could see 10 miles away, you could see that image on the left here, uh, the battlefield tower. And of course, being kind of new to the area, I wanted to get up there and see what it was like up on top of the tower. So I went up and I snapped that picture that's on the right. Now, ironically, the camera that I had only had black and white film. So my first visit to Gettysburg, I talk, took all the shots in black and white, which of course is ironic since my latest book is called Gettysburg in Color. But what's interesting about this particular photo and you can see here on the right is the uh, old cyclorama, Meade's uh, headquarters down here. And right here, you've got the clump of trees and the bloody angle and a roadway that went out to pass the clump of trees to the bloody angle. Basically, you could uh, park your car right where Armistead came over the wall. You also notice here it's Monday, and in nineteen in the nineteen seventies, interest in the Civil War kind of waned, and I eventually drove out there, and I was one of two cars that was in this area. Right here, you can only see one car. Uh, Gettysburg was a pretty quiet place at that time. There weren't a lot of people out there. Now it was it was in the summer, and it was a Monday, and it was somewhat rainy, but I was kind of surprised that there weren't a lot of people there. I eventually made it over to where the Virginia Monument is, and you'll see the clump of trees, and you can see the bloody angle, and you could also see the tower. Now, I cornered a, uh, a park ranger, and I said, you know, that tower, it's 
kind of weird. You could see it everywhere on the battlefield, no matter where I went, there was a tower. And he said, well, you know, there's something good to that. And what's good about that is you can now know where Meade's headquarters were at any point on the battlefield. And I went, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, that's great. And we departed and I moved on to Devil's Den or something. And then I started thinking, well, how important is it for me to know where Lee's headquarters were any point that I am on the battlefield? And I realized kind of late that maybe he was just making an excuse for the intrusion, the visual intrusion that was the tower. Now, as I've been going around talking about Gettysburg in color and showing this particular presentation, I've had a lot of people say, oh, I wish that tower was still there. The view up there was just spectacular. And so I'm not going to uh, uh, go any further into my thoughts about the tower, but I do have to admit that I went up, I paid my couple of dollars and went up to it in it. And what I remember most, uh, besides the view at the top, what I remember was that there was music playing in the elevator, too. And it was a battle cry of freedom going up and Dixie going down. I don't know if that's ironic or if they planned it that way, but that's certainly the way it was. Now, also interesting about this is that I never had any plans to write about the Civil War. As I came out of college as a political science major, I certainly had this... Uh, this interest in the Civil War, but I never regarded myself as a writer of, of any ability. And I never thought, well, I'm going to write myself books about the Civil War as I grow up. Um, I Some people argue I've never grown up. But be that as it may, I went on and continued to be interested in the Civil War, re reading about it, uh, visiting battlefields, and... Um, I eventually joined a band in the late 80s. This is the band where I met Bruce. We were called Dick Holiday and the Bamboo Gang. We were very popular in Chicago, and we were popular in another, a bunch of other places around the country, uh, Charleston, South Carolina being one of the places. First time we went there was right after Hugo. It was in January of 1990. And while I was there, I took the Blue and Gray tour of the Charleston uh, Civil War sites. And one of the last places I went to was Secessionville. And at the time, because Hugo had just gone through there, there were trees knocked over. There were houses knocked over on Folly Island. It looked like uh, the, uh, some kind of atomic bomb had gone off there. And I found the battlefield. And I thought, well, you know, I'm going to read up on this battlefield because we were going to come back in a couple months and play there again. And when I looked up what I could find, I only found two articles about it and a couple of pages in uh, Milby, Milby Burton's book about the Siege of Charleston. So there wasn't a lot about it. Uh, there was an article from the 60s in Civil War Times Illustrated. And I think that was uh, about the most detailed thing I could find about it. So in May of that year, I went back to the battlefield. I met some of the people that lived down there and talked to them about the battle. And they said, well, no one's written about it. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to write an article about this. I think I could research it enough and come up with a better uh, narrative of what happened at that particular battle. And 
all of a sudden, all this information started coming in. There were relatives that had uh, ancestors who were at the battle, and they had these amazing, someone had an unpublished book that uh, Eighth Mission, Again, a soldier who who had got captured at the battle and compared the injury he had to his ear with the same injury that uh, Colonel Thomas Lamar, the Confederate uh, commander of the fort, had. And before I knew it, I was telling people I was going to write a book about Secessionville. Now that's crazy. You you, you don't tell people you're going to write a book unless you're going to write a book. Going, you're you're talking to yourself, saying, "Well, I've got to write this book now because you told people you're going to write this book." Well, I kept at it, and six years later, I came out with Secession Goal Assault on Charleston. That led me to writing for um, North and South Magazine, Blue and Gray Magazine, Civil Times Illustrated. And it also led me to meet Ted Savas, who Savas Woodbury put this book out. Ted and I became friends. He's a musician, too, so we could talk about music a lot. And every now and then when we would talk, he'd ask me, well, are you, you going to write another book? And I said, no, I'm not going to write another book. That was crazy, spending six years of my life writing this book. Even though I loved every second of it, it was just, it was too much. And they had kids, and they had two businesses that I was running, and I just thought that it's just not going to happen again. Well, come COVID, 2019, I was sitting around and I was reminiscing because I was approaching uh, retirement. I had been a, uh, I had segued from playing five nights a week to starting a music pr production company in 1980 and started writing jingles and did pretty well in downtown Chicago. And then I met a man in Jonathan Towers who owned a company called Towers Productions. And I started scoring films and television shows. Ended up scoring over 300 shows, including uh, acting as a historical consultant on a number of them that dealt with the Civil War, including uh, histories, mysteries, raising the Hunley. And uh, so what I, what I was doing was just kind of sitting around reminiscing about my time in advertising. And in advertising, we had this thing, it was called the elevator pitch. What you were supposed to do you had an idea for a show or for a book or for a magazine article or for anything where you, you're pitching to somebody who has the power to tell you yes or no about the project. You want to come up with the pitch that is so airtight and perfectly delivered and perfectly focused that you can give this pitch in the time it takes you to ride from one floor to another floor on an elevator with the person. In other words, that door closes and you say, hey, I've got this idea, blah, 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 blah. And your idea is perfectly formed in their minds. And I was dreaming about that, about how many times I had had to do that, including pitching uh, TNT for a show about Robert E. Lee after the war. Uh, and the only response I got from that was, where's the pizzazz? And I realized, well, I guess I just didn't do a good pitch or I didn't bring out the pizzazz enough. Uh, so I was dreaming, you know, what would, what would be a cool book, a cool book that's not out? And, and I thought, well, what, what if you had a book about Gettysburg? 
And it was primarily picture book, kind of like the Bruce Catton, the Civil War for American Heritage. I'm sure everyone here has read and loved as a kid and obsessed over. So what if he had a book like that, except it was all about Gettysburg, and it told the story from beginning to end of all the different actions that happened during the three days and maybe leading up to and then the retreat back to Falling Waters. And, but it was all in color. Now, you had a narrative that was kind of like a Shelby Foot thing. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't uh, footnoted. Um, so what you were, what the emphasis would be on for someone to pick it up and be able to page through the whole thing and see every single part of the battle in color, including the people that fought there. And what would you call it? You had to pitch that. What would you call it? And I thought, well, I like pyramids. I like three things. You put three words together that can be very powerful. So the three words I came up with was Gettysburg in color. Explains it perfectly. So I called Ted Savitz. I said, Ted, Ted, I got an idea for a book. And he said, what is it? And then I got into my elevator pitch mode. And I said, Gettysburg in color. And there was a pause. He said, say it again. So I said, Gettysburg in color. And he said, okay, let me tell you what I think it is. It's a book about the Battle of Gettysburg that's got a lot of pictures, and they're all in color. I said, that's exactly it. So 24 hours later, I signed the contract. I had only done a couple of things. We had I'd done a, a color, colorizing a couple of things. I wasn't very good at it, but it was good enough that Ted bought the idea. And so he said, well, let's do it. Let's make a book called Gettysburg and Color. Well, by the time I'd finished with it, it was two books because it was too long to be one book. And the first uh, Gettysburg in Color, Volume 1, Brandy Station, Little Round Top, came out a year ago. And in, then in the May after that came out Volume 2, The Wheat Field, The Falling Waters. Now, the interesting thing about this is that I was originally going to have another guy do all the colorizing. I was just going to write it and find the images. But after about three or four months of working together, he did what the kids call ghosted me. He stopped answering my emails. He, I, I tried to call him. He lived in Sweden. He didn't answer anything. Evidently, he didn't want to work with me anymore. So all of a sudden, I had to do it myself. So I bought the software that you would use to uh, paint digital images. It's called Photoshop. There's another one called GIMP, and there's a third one called In. And I also did a deep dive on AI colorizers, artificial intelligence colorizers. And what these colorizers do is it's called deoldify. And what it does is it'll take your photo and analyze the darks and the lights and analyze what's in the picture and match colors from similar color photos. I would say that this AI process worked about 30%, 40%. It could get you not halfway to what the colors really were. So a lot of what I had to do was 
do research on the colors of the Civil War. And in the same way that it took me six years to write uh, Secessionville, because uh, you want to get the history right, and you want to tell the story as fully possible, and you don't want anyone coming to you afterwards and say, hey, you know, you're wrong here. You, this interpretation is wrong, or this you missed this source or anything. Luckily, we've got the internet now. And if I want to find a first Louisiana uniform, it usually can take me about three or four minutes to find it, and then I'll have a nice copy of it. I could take that copy, put it into uh, Photoshop or GIMP, and then sample the colors of that uniform and recreate those colors as a paint and use a, a digital paintbrush and go over a shot of a first Louisiana soldier, let's say attacking East Cemetery Hill. In that way, I went over every single image that I had and got, tried to get the color of the paint right, the color of the uniforms right, the accoutrement, the flags, uh, every single thing involved with these images. I tried to do a deep dive as possible to get those colors right. So I would use the AI up to a point and then do research on what the colors were. First image I'd like to show you is a rather famous image uh, that Alexander Gardner and Timothy O'Sullivan took of uh, the Union dead. Um, this is one of the last photos I did uh, for the book because I hadn't gotten around I had done the book in uh, chronological order and hadn't gotten around to the death scenes until uh, late in the process. And this was the one I chose because there were men in the background who looked kind of cool with their feet up on their shovels or their shovels down on the ground. And um, I ran into The first thing I did was download this image from the Library of Congress. This happened to be the best one of the many that were taken. Uh, from this angle. And I cropped it because I didn't think, oh, I was going to need anything on the side. And it would look better in a book if I cropped and got these bodies far, farther out front while still having some of that interesting stuff in the background. The very first thing I did was blow it up a lot and then start using small corrective paintbrushes and getting rid of all the anomalies. I had a, I had a number of philosophical that worked with with this and one of them the main one was that if people look at old photos part of the reason they go oh that's an old photo is because there's a ton of dirt there's scratches there's anomalies from the chemicals that were used and they show up and psychologically if you look at that picture and see a bunch of scratches and a bunch of anomalies you're gonna say well you know, it's an old photo. That's nice. It's an old photo. I wanted to get over that. I wanted people to not have that first reaction. So their first reaction would be, oh, wow, look at this. This looks like I'm looking at a, an image uh, that was just taken. Of course, you can only get so far with that. But I totally committed to uh, improving the images so much that that a person could react to them uh, in that really positive way. Uh, the next thing I did was um, do the deep dive on the uniforms. Um, the AI gave me a 
kind of an interesting concept here that no one had ever talked about. And that was it differentiated between the un blue uniforms and this butternut uniform here. And it occurred to me that maybe this was a Confederate back here. And you'll notice too, if in the uncropped version, there's two more bodies over here and they're all brown or butternut. Now, I called Ted Savage right away and I said, you know, I, I, I don't want to argue this and I don't want to get in a big fight with people, but I think this might be a photo of Union and Confederate dead. And I can't think of another one that shows both. I got the Elliott burial map and lined up, looked for areas where five Union troops were buried together. There were two of them on the battlefield. And on one, on West Seminary Ridge, uh, just northwest of the seminary building, there were three Confederates buried over in this area with the five Union troops buried here. Do we know that they weren't moved? This right here shows you one of these, uh, of, of the burial crew had started burying, had started uh, uh digging into the ground to bury these men. There'd also been a sixth body here that was a Confederate body that shows up on the second uh, group of photos that were taken. Uh, Gardner moved his camera over to the left and shot this to the Northwest, where in the background, you see 14 Confederates dead. You look at the Elliott burial map, there were 14 buried over there. So this concept that there were three Confederates buried in this area, five Union troops buried here, and 14 Confederates buried northwest of these guys uh, lined up perfectly with the Elliott burial map. Even more interesting is this extension of uh, McPherson Ridge, which is descending down to the Fairfield Road looks exactly the same as it does today. The problem is if you're standing here, there's a huge uh, forest that has been that has come up right here, right behind the YMCA. But you can walk down here, walk around where the forest ends and see this geographic marker. What's also interesting is if you look at the photo that goes in the other direction and match the background of South Mountain, it looks exactly the same as it does in this photo. So I matched the backgrounds and matched this to the Elliott burial map. And of course, I, I, I published that in so, uh, uh, the Civil War Monitor, where I'm, in, I'm the advisory board. And I had a number of people argue with me, you know, it's Gettysburg, so people are going to argue with you. And I didn't mind going back and forth. But it was because I ran it through that AI and discovered the difference in the colors that I was able to come up with this concept. Is it correct? Well, you know, everyone knows that history can change on the dime. But I like to think that um, it does have its merit as an argument. Now, this is where my daughter comes into, uh, into the seat. I had started doing a lot of these uh, uh, images and uh, woodcuts and uh, 
lithographs, black and white, and I taught myself to paint over them and use the same sort of deep dive historical uh, uh, inspections to figure out what the colors would have been on those uh, on those uh, types of artwork. However, when I tried to do the flesh color on this fine young man, Edgar Doubleday, I didn't do a very good job. It didn't look very good. And I talked to my daughter, who's a Photoshop expert, and I said, hey, do you think you could come up with a way to do uh, skin color? And she was like, yeah, yeah, I think so. You know, it shouldn't be that hard. And so she took a week, and I don't know if when you wake up in the morning, you look at yourself in the mirror. I look at myself in the mirror, and it's usually pretty scary. But if you look uh, long enough, you'll see that the color of your face is many, many, many different colors. There's light, there's dark, there's pink, there's flesh color, there's red, there's uh, where your beard is. And she figured out a number of techniques to approach um, doing these uh, portraits. Now, I did the uniform and the background, and then she did his hair and his uh, and his flesh. Now, one of the things we got we did was a uh, deep dive on what these generals look like. Not all of them are perfectly well described physically, but Larry Tag in his Generals of Gettysburg book did a remarkable research in figuring out what, in finding out how they were described in their lives, whether their skin was ruddy, where it was sallow, they had blue eyes, brown eyes. Um, and we used his book a lot. We had to do some other research too, uh, but we used that as something of a, uh, as a signpost that we would use. And uh, we both used that, although I didn't have anything to do with uh, her facial thing. Uh, Dylan did that all by herself. So all the portraits in the book uh, were done by Dylan. This, of course, is John Reynolds. Now, everyone's uh, aware of the many photos of John Reynolds, and he's always striking kind of a Napoleonic pose. He tends to be looking off towards his right. I found this photo in a staff photo of Ambrose Burnside that was taken in Fredericksburg in 1863, I believe. And Reynolds just happened to arrive there and uh, sat in it with the picture. And this is another philosophical concept that I had. If I had a choice between photos of somebody and one was good, but he wasn't looking at you, but another one was not so good, but he is looking at you, I wanted to use the, uh, the images where the subject was looking at you. There's something about looking into the eyes of these people back years ago and seeing something about their personality, something about uh, their strength or their weakness. And here you can look into Reynolds' eyes and probably see why people thought he was such a badass. I mean, that looks like a guy who would give a command and you would follow it. So that's why in some of these photos you'll see um, in the books, uh, the photos might not be the best quality, but they're looking at you, and that's what I wanted to do. 
Now, this is an, another example of the kind of images that we used. This was a black and white lithograph. This is, of course, uh, Reynolds getting killed. It's a, got some great action in it. His hat being flying off of his head. Uh, the Iron Brigade bursting through Herb's woods, driving back Archer's people here. And this guy here. Now, evidently, he was the Confederate that the, quote, sharpshooter who uh, plugged Reynolds. How he could survive here past the Iron Brigade, it's hard to say. But the artist decided that he wanted to include the man who shot Reynolds in the picture. Uh, again, we did a deep dive on the accoutrement, on what his sword looked like, the uniform that he had on at the time, the, uh, what, the what the horse was outfitted with. And uh, I did this all by hand. By the way, I would I uh, colors like that are aware and use those colors in the picture. Another thing we used with uh, was I licensed a number of paintings uh, to describe some of the action. This is a Peter Rothermel uh, painting of Reynolds' body being taken away by his staff and more troops arriving. Uh, we've got the Iron Brigade driving Archer's people through Herbst Woods. This is uh, the McPherson uh, farm complex here. And one of the more interesting things about this, uh, and since you're going to uh, uh, Gettysburg in April, make sure to do this. You know how you drive out the Fairfield Road and they make a right, I think, down to Reynolds Avenue, and it takes you up a hill and then you're up on McPherson Ridge. And when you get up on that hill, you're right around uh, the 121st Pennsylvania Monuments Biddles Brigade there. Note that the road that you're on goes absolutely level all the way to the Chambersburg Pike. And of course, that must be the only ridge in Pennsylvania that's absolutely level like that. Well, the fact is, is that the time of the battle, it wasn't level. There were actually three hills, some of which would be as much as 10 feet above the, the uh, saddles between the hills. And you get a really good example of this, that Herb's Woods was up on a hill that went down uh, 14 feet, according to uh, a survey that uh, the Gettysburg Battlefield Memorial Association did in the 1890s. Went down as much as 14 feet and then came back up to a second hill that extended down and eventually to Fair, the Fairfield Road. Uh, so when you're standing on Seminary Ridge and you look over at McPherson Ridge to your west, uh, you, again, you'll see that straight level and understand that at the time of the battle, that was a much more rounded landscape and that Biddle's people, some of them were up on a hill and some were down in the saddle. And it gives you a completely different appreciation for uh, the geography of that area. Now, of course, in, uh, in what's coming out next, hopefully this year, Gettysburg in Color Volume 3, it's going to be the battlefield after the battle up until 1938 when you have this, both the 75th anniversary and the proliferation of color film. What you see on the left there is the GBMA sign 
designating, here is the place where General Reynolds was killed, July 1st, 1863. You see that it's very close to the fence line beyond which is the McPherson Farm Complex. Um, only three or four uh, lines of trees. And then in 1887, the state of, uh, or 1886, the state of uh, Pennsylvania erected this monument to Reynolds, which I can tell you is nowhere near where the sign was, which tells me that, well, and we all know that where Reynolds died is probably will never be determined exactly, but this is a good example that their attempts to determine where he died uh, rendered the same sort of inaccurate locations back then as they do now. Both of these were from uh, the early, the, well, this, the one on the left is from um, the, in, from 1881, 1882, uh, the GBMA signs were all over the battlefield and they were, the lettering was in blue. And then this, this photo was from the 1890s. Again, I ran these through the AI and it rendered beautifully the grass and the backgrounds and everything. Um, it also did a good job capturing this, the color of the Reynolds Monument. But I, uh, when I compared it to what the Reynolds Monument looks like today, it was somewhat different. So I sampled the color of the Reynolds Monument today uh, and painted over this monument. So this is a combination of my work on the monument and the AI coloring everything else around it and this concrete, or the, uh, it's not concrete, of course, uh, the, the bottom. This is a beautiful shot that was taken in 1866. I ran it through the AI and it captured all the colors really well. I would compare it to modern photos and the colors were very much alike. But what I also did was blow it up and you could see the town of Gettysburg in the background. And I colored the buildings to be the exact color of the buildings that are still there as they are today. Uh, this cornfield uh, came up in the time after the battle. Uh, it wasn't a cornfield at the time. And now I think this is mostly the, uh, uh, the high school. But this is the sort of thing, the sort of landscape work that we did that allowed us to uh, use a combination of the AI and a deep dive into the color of the uh, buildings as they are today. Um, and of course, this visual is from Stevens Knoll, which connected East Cemetery Hill over here by this lane up to Culp's Hill to our right. And this was another thing we did with the book. Um, I had a theory that we, in order to use full color maps, we should just use the battlefield. Uh, the problem being that I didn't want to take you into the modern world with the battlefield. If you were looking at a uh, uh, a Google map of the battlefield, you would see cars, you would see modern buildings, you would see the roadways of the uh, of the uh, 
the park. So what my son did, I, I would uh, uh, get a copy of the part of the battlefield that we wanted to use for a map. I gave it to my son, who's also good with, uh, with uh, Photoshop, and he would get rid of all the modern stuff that's on, that's on the map and leave, for instance, the cemetery gate to Evergreen Cemetery there and the cemetery. My daughter designed the different uh, images that we use for Union troops, for Confederate troops. She came up with this troop movement concept, which included uh, uh, compass points from a compass from the Civil War. And she also, we came up with these cameras. And what these cameras do, all of these images in the book, the ones that are would also appear on a map, also have numbers. And for instance, this image here on, in its caption has the number eight. And then you would come here to the map and see, oh, so here's what I'm looking at. I'm sitting here on Stevens Knoll looking out at the field and this is what this field looked like from that photo. Of course, I, you know, I stole this from uh, William Frasinito, whose, you know, groundbreaking work affects everyone who deals with photographs in the Civil War. But this gives you a chance, first of all, to orient all the drawings that we have. So you can see exactly the angle in the battle that the uh, that's the point of view of the artist or the camera. And it also allows you to take the books out of the battlefield and find these positions and stand where the artists stood. In Rothermel's case, he did... Uh, I think it was five paintings. I think I used four of them. And it's really extraordinary. You could go exactly where Rothmerl sat and made his uh, his drawings. And he captures the landscapes beautifully. Um, and so this combination of both of my kids and me led to these. Uh, Dylan also came up with the uh, the concept of using the shoulder straps. And if you look really closely, all these little figures have hats and guns. But you have to blow it up to see that. Now, I'm going to show you how we tell the story by combining everything that we've uh, come up with image-wise to create a narrative besides the narrative that I wrote. Um, we would make a map like this, have these numbers. So you look at number eight, and this would also be number eight. And this was a black and white lithograph. Uh, hand painting of an image. If you blow it up, you can see Jubilee's trips coming out, troops coming out of the, the town of Gettysburg here. You see the gatehouse, and you see the 11th Corps troops lined up along uh, the, the uh, road bed there. And the different artillery units up on top of the hill. And here are Stevens' men's blasting into Avery's people and into the Louisianans over here. You also notice, too, that the, the uh, sky looks a little different than it does in the lithograph. The lithograph, of course, uses a lot of back and forth lines, and I wanted to get away from that. It didn't look like it was a sky. It looked like it should be in a magazine or something. 
So I came up with a process to create these clouds. Of course, it's getting dark at this point. You kind of see the sun is setting over uh, East Cemetery Hill, and the sky is getting a little more purple, and these clouds, the smoke is billowing. And I'll show you some more uh, uh, effects that we did with the sky coming a little later. Now we go into the battlefield, and here are the Louisianans at the base of East Cemetery Hill uh, rallying to charge up the hill. You've got the artillery hitting them from over here, from in front, and from the side, from Stevens Knoll. And, of course, you've got the sun setting back here. Now, uh, Scott Hardwig pointed out to me that the Louisianans, uh, although these are the uniforms, that they had at the beginning of the war, and this is the uniform that the uh, that the artist chose to portray too, because he must have known that this is what their uniforms look like, even though this was black and white. He had a lot that light and light brown, which was very uh, distinctive to the first Louisiana. Scott Hardwick pointed out that while the Louisianans were sweeping across Pennsylvania. Uh, one of the things they wanted to do was exchange all their clothes. So that a lot of them were wearing silk shirts and really nice pants, and 300 of them were wearing red shoes. They had, act, they had found a cachet of red shoes in some town in Pennsylvania and ended up wearing red shoes into the battle. So I said, well, you know, even though you got those uniforms right for the Louisianans, they probably weren't wearing those. They were probably wearing silk shirts and silk pants and red shoes. And I said, well, you know, I wish I'd known that, but I don't know that I would have put any of them in red shoes because that would have raised many more questions than that they answered. Of course, this is a, a wad, uh, watercolor of the Louisiana's uh, cresting East Cemetery Hill and getting in amongst uh, Weidrich's uh, guns and Weidrich's people fighting back. Wad did some work on this and he actually painted in these, this white smoke. I put in the flat of gunpowder flash and I also did a very, very light job of painting because he left it so as such an impressionistic view. I didn't want to go against the impressionistic view. And I, I used my own concept of impressionism to do it. And I actually did a, something of a dive on impressionism uh, in France in uh, the 1800s and the early 1900s. Uh, then, of course, I could go to Edwin Forbes, who did this uh, painting of Samuel Carroll's first troops, first corps or second corps troops arriving, the Louisianans among the Ricketts and Weidrich's guns, and the 11th Corps troops over here, led by Kurzanowski, coming over to beat back this attack. Uh, and we also have some great action here of uh, a caisson being pulled away and a little bit of the, uh, the evergreen cemetery uh, grave sites. Finally, we see Dylan's work with uh, Samuel Carroll, Red Carroll, as his name was. Um, he led his second, uh, his brigade troops from, from the Second Corps from the area of the uh, Bloody Angle on the night of uh, July 2nd and led them over, uh, came through the cemetery and attacked uh, Louisianans 
from the from the south and from the west. And uh, Dylan did this uh, work of creating his uh, his skin color. I did the uniform. Uh, one interesting thing about Samuel Carroll, who was a fine Irishman, he was also completely bald. But he wore that hat all the, the time. It's very rare to see him uh, as as uh, looking somewhat like me. The final image we used was a bas relief that's on uh, Weidrich's uh, monument. And these bas reliefs, I really loved. And I thought, you know, if I got a nice photo of these, I think I could uh, colorize them. Uh, by hand painting them. And uh, they turned out really cool because they're 3D. And if you're looking at it, you can't help but notice that, well, what exactly is this? It's not a flat image. You see stuff coming out of the image that creates a kind of 3D thing. Of course, I used the same color scheme for the uh, first Louisiana and many of the Louisiana troops. These were the uniforms that they'd look like. And of course, I used uh, the Union blue, sky blue, and dark blue. Uh, but what is interesting about this is that since I could blow, blow it up to do work on this sort of thing, um, one of the details that was revealed was that there were all these Union troops, uh, Carol's people, coming from the area around the gatehouse that were approaching uh, the battle from there. Which is very odd because if you see, if you're standing at that monument and looking at the monument, it's very hard to see that kind of detail in the background. But once I applied color to it, all of a sudden you could see that detail. Now I don't think that that that's not a. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm not critiquing the bas relief. That's just the nature of the bas relief. After the war. And in volume three, you're going to see a lot of photos like this. This is members of Stevens Battery standing on state on Stevens Knoll with uh, uh, the monument to uh, their battery there. You can see back here on East Cemetery Hill, this vaguely Dutch tower that was built as an observation tower. Um, you could spend 25 cents and go to the top, and if you had your kid with you, you could only, you only had to pay 10 cents to go up. And it gave you, a as they said, a spectacular view of the battlefield. The Gettysburg Battlefield Memorial Association, one of the first things they bought, as a matter of fact, it was purchased right after the battle, was East Cemetery Hill, and which is, which is why that particular tower was there. We also see right here John Chase, who was a cannoneer uh, with Stevens Battery at the time of the battle. He had won the Medal of Honor at Chancellorsville two months before. And here he was very near a shell explosion that ripped off his arm, his right arm, took out his eye, and landed 47 shards of metal in his body which allowed him to claim that he was the most wounded soldier of the Civil War. Now, he he had pamphlets published, he had a business card, and he uh, would come to Gettysburg reunions and introduce himself as the most wounded man of the Civil War. And I thought, gosh, you're really, are you overselling this? I mean, are you exactly sure of this? But then you look at his Medal of Honor and you realize he really shouldn't question any commercial thoughts he had about what his reputation was because 
you got to be a pretty brave man to face to win the, the Medal of Honor and then face down 49 shards of metal that ripped your body apart and somehow survived. Here we see Brickyard Lane at the bottom of East Cemetery Hill. Um, the tower is no longer up there. But you can see the lunettes, the artillery lunettes. And right here you've got a fence and a uh, and a gate that the GBMA built uh, to keep people out at night, maybe, I'm not sure. But the, this fence is still there. The gate is gone. Uh, but in many, many photos you see at East Cemetery Hill, you could see this gate down there. Um, let's see. I'm including this image because these are a bunch of musicians and I got to look out for my people. Uh, Sons of Veterans, Fife and Drum Corps, Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. Phoenixville was a village north of Philadelphia, and it's now a, uh, a suburb of Philadelphia. I contacted the Phoenixville Historical Society, and they had no idea of what these uniforms are. kind of a deep dive on what Fife and Drum Corps uh, wore uh, 20 years after the battle. And I ran it through the AI, and this was color as close as I could get. I couldn't really uh, match it against any historical descriptions or images of these uniforms, but I think it's probably pretty close. They came to Gettysburg uh, probably for a weekend and were part of some kind of uh, reunion there. And I suppose that if I was born in Phoenixville to a veteran, I might have been in this picture in the 1880s. So I, as I finished uh, volume two and started working on volume three, I kind of had a moment where I was thinking about stuff. And I thought back to 1979 when I uh, drove across uh, New Jersey, listening to Bruce Springsteen and went to upstate New York to uh, encounter Bob Dylan and the band on their home turf and uh, go to Gettysburg. And I realized that at the time, I thought I had two different things that I was doing. But now with the benefit of age and uh, the supposed wisdom that I've gotten from being alive for a long time, I realized that they were one and the same, that I went to New Jersey and to upstate New York and to Pennsylvania to get closer to the history that had kind of captured me, my love of music, my kind of need to uh, perform music and to write songs that people might relate to, and my need to go to the Civil War battlefields and stand on the ground and touch the ground and be in the places that you've been reading about. And that somehow doing that will get you closer to what you're pursuing. And even if we don't know what we are pursuing, you know, we know we're pursuing something and we're hoping to find it. And sometimes it's a discovery. Uh, sometimes it's a realization. It's It can take many, many forms. But I realized how lucky I was that I'd been bitten by that, like we've all been bitten like that. We don't want to just sit 
and read about somebody else doing something. We want to get out there in the field and get close to where they were. We want to uh, come in contact with that physical thing, hoping some of it might rub off on us or hoping that we just might understand it a little better. Uh, knowing that there's always more to understand. There's always more music to listen to. There's always more to understand about the Civil War. Um, I realized that I had uh, pursued these books much against my better judgment because once I started doing this and learning how to use the software and use the AI and do these deep dive, these deep historical dives, on trying to come up with the right colors, what the, the right colors of the Civil War are. I realized how much I loved it and how I wanted to continue to do it and spend, you know, eight, 10 hours a day for three or four years doing it. And how amazing it was that I could somehow get closer to one of my favorite things, the Civil War, and one of my favorite things in the Civil War, Gettysburg, and realize at the same time how wonderful it is that I can take time out and sit here in my house. I, of course, would much rather be at the hotel, but how wonderful it is that I could spend time with all of you and share this with you. So thank you very much. I really, really appreciate you asking me to do this, and uh, I enjoy doing this, and I hope you enjoyed it too. And clapping, yes. It's the beauty of silent clapping. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, we can, we're going to have to uh, colorize our clapping, I think, here or something. Uh, well, thank you again, Pat, for that great presentation, great talk. I think I can speak for all of us that we learned a lot about, geez, uh, not just Gettysburg, but the colorization process. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, the the techniques that we that are in our hands today for research and for image uh, manipulation are they're extraordinary. Well, now now we're gonna three, throw things open for questions, and I'm just gonna start out by saying, can um, give you an opportunity to say, how can people get these books of yours? Oh. Uh, please tell us about that. Uh, they're available. Uh, they would have been in boxes in the corner of the room where we spoke, where we were going to speak tonight, but they aren't there. They're on Amazon. They're on. Uh, uh, they're available at Savas Beatty. Uh, at Savas Beatty, you'll pay a little more, but you'll get a, a postcard that myself and my daughter have signed. And uh, if you want to contact me and have it personally, uh, uh, autographed and with your name in it. Um, you guys have my email. Anyone can get a hold of me. I could set it up. It'll cost what the books cost, $37.50. And I think the postage is $5.05. And I'd be happy to do that for anybody. It's also available at uh, what bookstores are still standing. It's available at the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop. But Amazon and uh, uh, what's the, I forget what the other one is. Uh, you know, you could just 
do a Google search for Gettysburg and Co. or Patrick Brennan, and it'll take you to someplace that will sell it to you. Well, I should add that Pat's going to be speaking to uh, some of the other roundtables in the Chicago area, and perhaps you can pick up a copy and an autograph uh, direct from the author if you attend those uh, attend those meetings. Yeah, I think I'll be speaking at South Suburban Roundtable. Uh, right, right. Later End of this January. Year. January 25th, I believe. Okay, so. But contact, I mean, if you want, if you want me to, uh, you know, sign it specifically to somebody, just contact me. My, you guys have my email and it's, I'm happy to do it. I'm in Wilmet, so it's, you know, we have post offices up here. It's great. Okay, let me take a look about the questions here. I just have a question. Um, for example, that first photo you did about the uh, burials, how mm -hmm. long did it take you and your team to colorize just that one photo? That was just me. That was just me. And um, that was one of the longer ones to clean up. I'd say it took five hours to clean that up. Um, what I end up doing is blowing it up and there'd be little bubbles or there'd be scratches or anomalies in the in the uh, in the photo, you know. It's a they were using this uh, uh, chemical process, and they were doing it in the field, and they would you know expose the glass plate and then run back to their uh, to their uh, their black their dark room, which was on a wagon. And that would, you know, that just the dust alone would get on it and be on there forever on the wet stuff. And so even as beautiful as they are, when you blow these photos up, the, you can see a lot of problems with them. And I, I, th there were like four or five different techniques that I used to clean them up. And then at that point, I'd run it through the AI, which only took like a minute or so. But then I would do all the hand painting over it to correct what the AI didn't get right. And with those particular, uh, I probably spent, I'm going to say 12 to 15 hours on that image alone. That was a lot. Others would go a lot quicker. But a lot of those with a lot of detail uh, that I wanted to get right could take a lot of time. The record is going to be uh, in the uh, photo from the 75th anniversary that was actually in really good shape because it was film. It wasn't glass plate. And it's uh, one of the shots of uh, U.S. infantry marching up Baltimore Street and just beginning to go around the curve in the diamond. And you've got a huge crowd standing there and everything. And I ended up having to uh, paint every person in the crowd individually because the AI couldn't, didn't work well there. And that took forever. And I would say that was probably about, oh, close to four days of work, maybe, maybe 30 hours, something like that. But you know what? It's funny too, um, being a keyboard player as a musician, I spent a lot of time playing scales and learning things all by myself. So even from a really young age, you know, I started playing piano when I was seven years old. Even from a young age, 
I I lived in my head a lot by myself. You know, you practice three hours a day as a seven or eight year old. You're kind of like, you know, you're your brain's flying, but you're you're thinking, oh, you know, I'm Van Cliburn, and someday I'm going to, you know, win a Russian competition or something. Like, you know, you, your mind's going like crazy. So, I'm I've been pretty comfortable being by myself working on something. I kind of get lost in it, and and the, I suppose this is a result of it because I'm still working, you know, anywhere from six to twelve hours a day on volume three right now, and it's still I've still got a couple months to go before it'll be finished. So, so it it depends, I suppose, is the answer. Um, you know. Some of them went very quickly. Some of them took a long, long time. Thank you. Yeah. See, from the chat, uh, Gary Fine says, Patrick, perhaps you can bring copies of your books to a future meeting of the Chicago Civil Roundtable and Convenient. And he says it was a fantastic talk. Well, thank you. Um, I'd be happy to. I'll, you know, I, I don't want to, if if some other author is there and they're selling books too, I don't want to step on their toes. But if you have someone coming in who's not selling books, then I'd be happy to come and uh, and, uh, and sell them to whoever wants them. I think that's a pretty good idea. Yes, Let me know, Bruce. In the chat also, for those of you attending, uh, uh, you can take a look at the chat. Uh, Jim Cunningham has posted links to ordering the first two volumes of the Gettysburg and Colors. So you. Uh, you can take a look at the link right here if you want to. You don't have to do your own research. So uh, they're right there for you. Right. Um, um, other questions or comments or concerns or Stan Getz recommendations or anything? Uh, uh, Bruce, I hope, I, I hope you hope you don't follow Stan Getz's method for artistic inspiration, and I think you know what I'm talking about. No, I, I, I might have, I might have uh, gotten near it once upon a time, but no, I never do that. Okay, <laughs> yeah, he, I think he did something called Marrakesh Express, and you know, it's a, <laughs> I think that should give you the give the hint to people who don't know Stan Getz, but. Uh, 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 Bruce, Mark, Mark Matranga here. Uh, I was kind of raised on Getz, Gilberto, and other stuff, but I, I just had a comment for Mr. Brennan. Uh, I I think your work here is a, a great work of imagination, and I think my my wife's aunt, who was an avant-garde artist, who uh, who at one time in the I think it was in the seventies, she was trying to create smells for colors in other words she 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 said I, what does blue smell like uh she did a lot of public artwork her her best known work had to be taken down at seven world trade center it, the building had to be destroyed she did a great work there but she did a lot of public artwork uh your work here is like that i mean you know what what were the colors of civil war i think my wife's aunt alexandra would you, you know you would have had a pretty good talk about that you know about he's someone who wanted to know what colors smelled like she would be very intrigued with your 
endeavor, you know, into wondering what were the colors of the Civil War. That's pretty fascinating work of imagination on your part. Uh, now, are you, are you saying? I congratulate that you, you on that. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. You're saying that you were married to an avant-garde artist. Well, it's my wife's aunt. Oh, she's your wife's aunt. Okay. Aunt, yeah, she's deceased now, but she did a lot of public artwork, and uh, she she lived in New York. Uh, but what was uh, her name? Alexandra Kashuba. She did, you know, uh, one of the subway entrances on Lexington Avenue, the Third Avenue. Sure, Subway sure. still exists. Uh, she did stuff in uh, Buffalo, uh, other places. Uh -huh. But uh, but yeah, she uh, you know she did a lot of different stuff. But anyway, yeah, I I I was thinking of that when you were talking about uh, as you finished up when you were talking about uh, you know trying to get close to something, how, trying mm -hmm. to figure out what were the colors of the Civil War. That yeah. kind of reminded me of my wife's aunt when she said that many so many years ago. What what do colors smell like? Uh, oh, it, it, you know, it, it you know it, it it is a work of imagination, uh, and, the, and of course the the photographs colored like that they're just they are fascinating. Uh, they really are. I don't have your books, but I am definitely going to have to get them now. <laughs> I'm very intrigued by by what you've done here. Right, and by you. the way, I did see you. I think once on Madison. Street in Forest Park, Dick Holiday. Uh, I went there with my niece. She was she followed the band everywhere when she was young. <laughs> it, it was a uh, it was a popular band, and uh, you you know it's kind of funny. Uh, there was a uh, thing I was involved with. I uh, probably a lot of us were involved with when Disney wanted to build Disney's America uh, by the Manassas Battlefield. Right. Yeah. And I got I had been involved in um uh saving that the that part of the the, the fourth quarter of the Manassas battlefield in the late 80s when uh Till Peterson was had bought it and started leveling um the approaches to Chin Ridge and where Lee's headquarters were and where Longstreet's headquarters were. And uh I had uh, gotten involved in uh, the fight against Peterson, which we eventually won. And then, I don't know, it's not not much later um, that Disney tried to, to do their thing. And at a uh, at a Dick Holiday gig, I got two women to go out with uh, with uh, sign up sheets to oppose the development of. Uh, of uh, the uh, actually, I think it was with the development of the, uh, uh, the not the Disney thing, but the the, the Till Peterson development, and they came back with five hundred signatures in about fifteen minutes that I was able to send and say, "Well, look at all these people in Chicago who are mad about you know you doing this," and uh, I ended up getting uh, Charlton Heston on board. Uh, just because I saw a picture of him looking out at uh, at Gettysburg, looking out at Pickett's Charge, and he had kind of like a safari vest on, and he had, a, a, you know, kind of a safari hat on. He had that steely gaze. I thought, oh, he'd be good for this. So I went through the machinations and how he would have getting hold of his uh, manager, and he ended up writing, uh, Heston ended up writing to me and saying, you know, 
the Civil War's watershed, please make sure that these developers are not successful. Moses told me to stop this thing from happening. So uh, we forwarded that, and I had no idea at the time, but Charlton Hudson was a big friend of Ronald Reagan, and he was also a big shot with a lot of the California uh, state uh, representatives. And that changed a bunch of votes. And Reagan went along with, oh, Charlton Huss wants me to do this. Okay, I'll do it. And we got $108 million and saved that part of the battle. Um, I don't know how I got into that subject. But what I want, did want to say was that one of the things that this uh, project has done for me is increased my amazement and not only at the photographers that went out and did this, which is just an insane thing to think they were out roaming the countryside, getting stopped by Jeb Stewart on their way to Gettysburg, and then getting there and convincing gravediggers to stop their work while they took pictures. And I'm amazed at them, but then I'm also amazed at the, at the the artists that wrote that drew for the magazines and everything. We really used a lot of those lithographs and and like the Alfred Wad uh, 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 watercolor that you saw the attack on East Cemetery Hill. Um, I was just amazed by this stuff, and it really gave me an uh, unbelievable appreciation for what all these artists did and. and firmed up in my mind how much they influenced how we view the Civil War because those are the images that are in our minds about this is what happened in the Civil War. And it's, is it really, no, it's just a reflection of what happened, but it's an artistic reflection of what happened. And these guys were so good at that that I just, you know, I was in awe of it. No Matthew Brady, no Civil War. <laughs> no Alexander... <laughs> Or Alexander Gardner or whoever. Yeah. yeah, I do use a lot of Brady stuff in it too, but the Gardner stuff, there's just such an immediacy to it because they're there and you see the broken guns on the ground and you you just you just see the ephemera everywhere and it's it's really an amazing amazing record that they left. Great presentation. Um you know, as, as you were going through the colorization, Patrick, and, and you saw the carnage, you know, what came to my mind right away was the John Prine Lake Marie song where, you know, have you ever seen a blood in a black and white video and trying to colorize it? Um, what, what, was, what were your, some of your thoughts and, and how did it, how did they stray as you were, you were looking at so much of the carnage and, and colorizing it? Well, one of the things that I found interesting was that the AI did pick up uh, blood stains where there should have been blood stains. You notice on that uh, the shot of the five Union troops, probably Pennsylvania reserves, um, that there's now they were in the rain too. But you know, these guys blood out. You know, there were there had to be blood everywhere, and. Uh, a lot of it was, you know, stayed in their uniforms, stayed in their uniforms, and uh, the AI kind of picked that out. Uh, uh, it, and it's really kind of astounding, you know. I, I yesterday I was in Milwaukee, and uh, 
I gave the same presentation. And when they first saw that photo, you heard some people kind of, you know, pull back and, and go, oh, oh, you know, because it is startling to see this stuff in color. Um, the, I, I have actually had an argument with the publisher and he, but he's into it. Uh, I was actually arguing against it, but that famous shot of the Confederate infantryman that they said was hit by artillery fire and was disemboweled. And then Frasinito said that eh, it might've been hogs eating them. Well, I, I, I've done that and it's gruesome. And there's another uh, photo of some Confederates on Rose Farm that are waiting to be buried. And one of the soldiers have been dis disemboweled. And in black and white, you don't really notice it, but in color, you really notice it. And it again, it's not as gruesome as the other one, which is so up close and everything on Rose Farm. This one's a little farther away, but it's really, it's startling and it's gruesome. And it, in that way alone, I think it gets us all a little closer to the cost of the war and what this stuff really means. You aren't removed saying, well, I'm looking at an old photo and it's scratchy and it's black and white. You're looking at a cleaned up photo that's in color and is startlingly real. And I think that, that uh, that's certainly something that, you know, it'll live with me forever, I think. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Um, are there any other questions or comments? A lot of good comments and questions here, by the way. Appreciate it. Okay. Well, if not, uh, we're just going to wrap it up right now. Just say uh, next month, uh, which will be February 9th, Carolyn Ivanoff is going to speak on the 17th Connecticut at Gettysburg. You can see there's a big Gettysburg theme here in connection with our uh, tour. Just again, encourage people, if you haven't done also done so already, to sign up for the Gettysburg tour. Uh, we've been promised a Irish pub. Uh, Dennis says for food, but I think he, he has a little flexibility on what food means in an Irish pub. So uh, we'll find we'll find that out okay. certainly. Hopefully there's a local Irish brew that we can sample. And uh, Jim Cunningham just posted on chat a link to your Secessionville book, which I have in my library here, by the way, of course. And it's a welcome book uh, and everything. So other than that, we're just going to call a halt right now. Just say, enjoy, drive safe, keep warm, keep dry, and um, take care, everybody. And thank you all. all. Right. Really, really appreciate being asked to do the time. Next time when volume three comes out, we'll meet again. Sounds good. We'll we'll schedule you then. Okay. Thank Bye -bye. you. Bye -bye all.